I am Plot on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more engaging and in-depth histories of Broadway is out now, ever after 40 years of musical theatre and beyond 1977 to 2020. It features over 100 interviews from luminaries of Broadway like Stephen Sondheim, Julie Taymor, Billy Porter, Laura Benanti, and more. Its uh, author Barry Singer joins me now in his work as a journalist and critic as well as uh, a fan of the art form. He has attended almost all of the musicals that debuted in the over 40 years covered in the book. He writes, too, about the pause on Broadway due to COVID-19, and I asked him when we spoke last week about what's happening now on The Great White Way. One of the major themes in the book is the chronicle of theatre and the evolution of musicals in these years, whether it's Sondheim and his work or the appearance of Disney's mega-musicals or those of Andrew Lloyd Webber. The book covers the creative triumphs and landmarks as well as the flops. He takes us through the birth of Wicked and the emergence of shows like Fun Home, Dear Evan Hansen, The Band's Visit, Hades Town, and Hamilton. Mr. Singer's own view of the theater can be followed in the book as he describes his thoughts on various kinds of shows. And uh, with the growing up of his own daughters and their own perspectives, we see Barry's own opinion change. He dedicates this new edition of the book to them, as well as Jonathan Larson, whose tragic triumph with Rent is written about. I'll ask Barry about when he met Larson for the first time and their own friendship. I'll ask uh, him about Larson's influence on the musical genre over the past 25 years, even though he died in 1996. This book was originally published 17 years ago, and this new edition is from Applause Books. Barry Singer has written for the New York Times, the New Yorker, New York Magazine, as well as the Huffington Post and Playbill. He is the author of Black and Blue, The Life and Lyrics of Andy Ratzeff, Alive at the Village Vanguard, and most recently, Churchill Style, The Art of Being Winston Churchill. He is the proprietor of Chartwell Booksellers, one of the last independent bookstores in New York City. Visit barrysinger.net for more. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Barry Singer. Mr. Singer, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. What is it like um, to, to revisit a book, say, 17 years later? Uh, it's, um, it's a mixed bag of feelings. Um, uh, it brings me right back to the moment when I was writing it the first time. It also... Um, uh, brings into glaring relief some of the things that I want to change, and uh, I did revisit those things and rewrite areas of the book. Um, uh, it also, as I said, suddenly became um, a history of an era that had um, been brought to a sort of a cataclysmic ending by COVID, mm. um, and that was very interesting. When I wrote it, obviously, I thought of it very much as just part of the continuum of musical theater history. Um, but bringing it up to date made it uh, a summation of a, you know an, an era in a way that no other book that I know of just simply by circumstance uh, so, so, functions that way. So when we fi- when we finish your book, it, it ends. Um, um, I guess we're talking now at the end of October. Um, I'm going to ask you what it's like in New York now. But uh, so it sort of updates the book, doesn't it? Oh, about. Um, a half to two thirds of the book is new, completely yeah. new writing, and uh, it writes. I, I, I was writing about year by year, season by season, mm-hmm. um, the Broadway and Off Broadway musical theater, but it came crashing up against the um, the shutdown. You know, when Broadway pulled the plug on uh, turned the lights off in March 2020. 
Yeah. So, um, as I said, we're talking at the end of October. Um, what does it look like in New York now on Broadway and, and um, in, in the theater there? Spotty. Mm-hmm. You know, a few of the big hit shows have returned and reopened. Lion King, Hamilton. So the lights are on. Uh, there are crowds entering those theaters. Other theaters are dark. Um, other shows are waiting to reopen, and I think we'll in November and December. Um, it's very uh, exciting just to have theater back. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got my tickets to see Carolina Change, which is a show that I write about uh, in the. I wrote about in the first half of Ever After when it came out right. originally, and then I was ready to go see it. Um, I mean, I had tickets to see it when they. Uh, shut when they shut down. I mean, the marquee, which I pass often, mm-hmm. um, has had Carolina change up now for two years, um, waiting to come back. So now, uh, next month, I'm looking forward to seeing it. So it's a very exciting uh, to, to go back to the theater, and it's a very frightening thing to go back into the theater. Um, I'm nervous about it. Um, I'm fully vaccinated, but mm-hmm. still, you know, sitting with a lot of people close in a closed space, even with masks and vaccinations. Um, it's scary, but it's exciting. Um, I'm more excited and curious to know ultimately, and this will take a little while to figure out what, how this changes Broadway. Mm. And um, uh, I, I, I honestly uh, am thinking it could change it for the better, um, as horrible as what we've been through, um, you know, indisputably remains. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to see whether the tourists compiling back in, ready to spend exorbitant amounts of money that were being charged to see some of these shows and whether i mean broadway producers will take more chances ultimately on lesser known material because that ready audience isn't there i don't know when the tourists will come back to new york they're just trickling back but obviously biden's recent um uh changing of the rules to allow people in who are vaccinated is, is not hit broadway yet yeah, yeah. Uh, but talking about how Broadway um, or, or musical theater could be better, you write in the book about the racial uh, democratization of Broadway, um, uh, r- racial as well as gender in terms of, of say, um, women directors, uh, composers, and producers. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and we see that in the in the first half of the book, definitely with say people like Julie Taymor. And her emergence, and and um, in in the second the second half of the book with uh, Janine Tesori, um, do do you think that the, these things are are long lasting, perhaps? Yes, without question. Um, talent wins out in the end, mm. and Julie Taymor was was and is as talented as they come. Although she's had some misfires since Lion King. Uh, she was a great person to bet on, and of all people, you know how ironic that it was Disney, mm-hmm. the, the by far the most commercial producer, who did bet on Tamor for Lion King and won, paid off. And I think she broke her breakthrough, uh, then brought uh, made it easier or possible for very talented women like Janine Tesori, or a director like a director like Rachel Chavkin, who directed Hades Town and um, The Great Comet. Uh, to get to break through, I don't think they're going to ever roll roll back those breakthroughs at this point. Um, and there are women uh, producers who have had power, increasing power for years on Broadway. I think that's all wonderful. The racial component is more complex to me because 
it's in some ways easier to pay lip service to that. Um, you do have more African Americans or people of color mm-hmm. being cast in all kinds of roles, including colorblind casting, which is all terrific. But the message often gets garbled um, with Broadway, and they they um, they've, they've defaulted to to a certain um, dismissiveness, as far as I'm concerned, in many of the uh, the, the shows that get. Uh, nominated for Tonys or get or get the, ultimately the Tony Award. Um, that I'm hoping will change. Obviously, um, Black Lives Matter and all that occurred with you know Floyd's murder mm-hmm. uh, during the pandemic will hopefully cement deeper changes. And um, you know, without getting into it, there's a lot going on on Broadway to try to bring um, more um, open-hearted racial thinking into the uh, the process on Broadway. But that is a it's a it's a much more tricky commodity if you know what I mean. It, the, yeah. the, to to change the way people look at uh race on Broadway is much more difficult than it is to just hire more people of color which is just you know a, a, an easier thing to do. Indeed. Um, the, the book is a, a, a marvelous read. It, it, it's like a yearbook. It's like a diary. You're, you're a great stylist. Um, Thank you. But what I really enjoyed um, as the book goes on is uh, seeing or, or reading about the shows through the eyes of your daughters. Because they come of age in the course of, the say, the last third of the book. And yes. you start going to the theater with them. And they start telling you what they think about it. And, and I'm wondering, as um, a person who's older than they are, um, and not just the relationship between, say, a parent and a child, but, but as a theater goer, how did your own taste change when, when uh, going to the theater with your kids, say? Well, uh, I'm glad that that worked for you because it was a gamble for me. I felt that there was something to be learned. I thought that I learned a great deal looking at the theater through their eyes and hearing their opinions. And I took the shot uh, in, in writing the second half of the book to include judiciously those opinions uh, when they seemed uh, to matter most. Now, um, I was, uh, Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber, for example, is not a favorite of mine. I've never liked um, his music or the shows that he's made for the most part. And uh, clearly he's, he's kind of a villain, particularly in the first half of the book from my perspective. So it was wonderfully eye-opening for me um, to bring my daughters to see School of Rock, which mm. was Lloyd Webber's most recent show on Broadway. Yeah. And, um, and they just loved it. And uh, I was able to enjoy it a whole lot more because it was pitched clearly to their ears and their age. Um, and there's no shame in that. I mean, it's about kids getting up on stage and, you know, playing rock and roll in a Broadway musical. And... Um, I don't know that I would have enjoyed it nearly as much or even gotten it <clears throat> if I hadn't been sitting with two teenagers, uh, young teenagers, while I was watching it. And then the best part for me, which I include in the book, is when my older daughter turned to me when it was over and you know, the ovations were still going on and she screamed at me, what is this problem you have with Andrew Mike <laughs> Weber? I love this show. I want to see Phantom now. <laughs> and I just thought... What else do I have? I, there's not another word that I need to say about this show. My daughter just said it all, so I included that. Did you take her to Phantom? I did not, because I 
Chancellor could not sit through it again, but I bought her a ticket, and she went by herself, <laughs> and, did and she you, liked it. Oh, well, that's good to hear, yeah. Um, yeah. You, so you dedicate the books to your daughters, and uh, as well as Jonathan Larson. Um, you write uh, near the beginning of the book that Jonathan Larson's death recolored the past in an instant. Um, by the way, um, when did you first meet him? Did you, did you meet him first, or did Sondheim meet him first? Um, oh, Sondheim met him first. I see. I'll tell you, I actually wrote... Uh, a whole section um, accounting for how Jonathan and I met, which I then cut from the book because I just felt that um, although it was interesting, it did not, it didn't fit, and somehow it threw the weight of what I was trying to do, which was write about all the shows. Uh, so I took it out. Um, but I will tell you real quick that um, he and I met in a very, very odd confluence. Um, we, I went to see a Sondheim tribute evening at Carnegie Hall, I think a birthday concert around 19, in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And um, I got a single ticket through Sondheim's office. I, I knew Sondheim. Um, I'd interviewed him. We talked about musical theater on the phone a lot and sometimes got together and drank over it. We had a relationship, I won't say that, a friendship. We, it wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't an intimate friend, but I'd mm -hmm. spent time with him. So I got this ticket single through his office, and I'm sitting in Carnegie Hall in my seat waiting for the curtain, and there's one seat to my left that's empty, and this guy comes moving through the aisle and sits down next to me. And um, he dropped down, looked at me, and said, how did you get your ticket, with a big smile on his face. And I said, I got it from Sondheim. He said, me too. And he introduced himself, and it was Jonathan Larson. Mm. Uh, this is uh, 1991 or two. He, um, he was still working at the Moondance Diner and was completely unknown. But um, Sondheim had been supportive of his work to the extent that John was able to get a ticket from his office. I wound up buying him a drink, buying Jonathan a drink uh, at the intermission, and he immediately launched into a, I've got to come here, the show he's writing. He's a I'm a musical theater composer, he said. Um, I know that doesn't mean anything because I haven't done anything, but you, I'm writing a show called Rent, and I want, would you come down and hear it? And very shortly after that, I uh, took the train down to his kind of, funky apartment loft uh -huh. um and uh he steered me dropped me down into a chair steered me between two speakers turned out all the lights handed me a script with a little light lamp next to it and uh played a recording of him singing the entire score of rent at that point and um I was blown away by the quality of the music and I was completely confused as to what the show is actually about but we wound up becoming very good friends. We had similar interests. We both shared an antipathy to Andrew Lloyd Webber. We went <laughs> to the theater a lot. Um, we hung out. Uh, I went to all the readings and workshops of Rent. John sang songs that he had newly written on, on, onto my answering machine, which he did with a lot of friends and relatives. Um, and uh, I worried about him and watched him and hoped that he would achieve all that he expected to achieve because John really did set out, as he said frequently, to write Hair for the 90s and uh, remake the musical theater with rock and roll. And um, when he finally got it to New York Theater Workshop, um, he used to call me from rehearsals and play and, and just hold the phone up to hear how fabulous the cast sounded. And I was, of course, very excited for him. Um, and then he died um, just before the last preview, just before the show began previews. Not the last preview, the yeah. last, yeah, just before it began previewing. So, so in this the period, 
just after yeah. the dress rehearsal. So in this period of time that you knew him and, and Rent was, was uh, being conceived and staged, how, how, did you have an inkling that this would change the musical theater genre? Uh, an inkling is all I had. Mm. Um, I thought again and again that this was exceptional theater songs and great rock and roll. Um, but it was still, as far as I was concerned, given that you know John had been at this a long time and had not been widely appreciated, and um, I was worried for him. I certainly didn't see that the future of the Broadway musical was going to be as John envisioned it. But I did think that it was going to help. He was going to get um, some attention because of it, and that he would at least get to write more shows because of it. His death, um, horrifically. Um, solidified everything about Rent that was about death and young life lost. Um, whether he saw that um, prophetically in his own, uh, you know, incredibly spiritual, strange way, I have no idea. But he did seem to predict his own death with the show. And um, that, you know, just added to the mystique of what he had done and um, it took off as a result of that, but it was just the most unbearable thing that I've ever experienced in my life. And I still can't listen to Rent without crying many times, as my kids know, because my kids adore yeah. Rent yeah. and play it a lot. And uh, used to play it for me before they realized that I that I knew the composer, because mm. you know they would just hear it on on their you know streams, and yeah. they liked musical theater songs, so they loved Rent. And I had to finally sit them down one day, and eventually, not only explained it to them, but I wound up taking them once to meet John's sister and John's dad, who I knew really well and when they were in New York. I introduced them to my kids, which was also very moving for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I can't say that I, I, saw, I listened to Renton and I thought this is going to, everything that John dreamed is going to happen. I tell you who did think that, though. I met Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum um, when they were two young um, wannabe producers um, and they showed up at John's apartment for a what John used to call a peasant feast. Every Thanksgiving, he'd invite everybody he knew to come bring a dish and something to read aloud. We all had to stand up and like sing for our supper and perform something. Um, and this was a big hang in John's place. And he introduced me to these two young guys. It was Jeffrey Siller and Kevin McCollum, who I didn't know and didn't, their names didn't mean anything to me at the time. And they said to me that they loved the show. This was before New York Theater Workshop and that they wanted to produce it, and they hoped to bring it one day to Broadway and change everything. And I just thought, wow, guys, good luck with that. Mm. Um, but, of course, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. So I'll ask you about Seller in just a second, because his career is just remarkable in and of itself. Yes. Um, when, when you write in the book that, that this period after, the, the second half of the book, really, is the Jonathan Larson era, um, yes. what do you... Uh, mean by that? I mean, I I know what you mean by it, but I mean for people listening to us, I mean, um, sure. th they might think that because you know he died in 1996, um, how could he have such influence on 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 a period 20 years later? But but he does, doesn't he? Well, if you think that the evolution of the Broadway musical during that period has brought contemporary music, often rock and roll, ultimately rap, mm -hmm. and um, into the into the Broadway musical for the better, that it has brought um, all persons of, of of color into the Broadway musical mainstream, um, and it has, and it it has brought um, 
all uh, manner of sexuality and the expression of sexuality and homosexuality and uh, non-binary, LGBTQ, the whole idea of it and the reality of it into the Broadway musical, and it has. That's what Rent did. Rent had all of that in it, and no one else had that in it before Rent. Um, it didn't matter to anyone else as it mattered to Jonathan with Rent. And as a result, he um, it's a revolution that continues with a direct connection to Rent, even if it doesn't sound like Rent. Um, it, it somehow looks like Rent because of that, uh, what, what John was able to um, express with Rent, that um, all people have value and, um, um, and have a right to sing. Have you seen the movie Tick, Tick, Boom yet? I just got an invitation to see it, yeah, to a preview of it. But I'll tell you something really freaky. Um, I spent quite a bit of time with John in his crazy apartment. Um, and when he died, I actually um, packed it up with a few of his closest friends. It was an awful experience, mm-hmm. and we uh, left a lot of stuff out on the street because it was absolutely worthless. And, but I, So I knew that space. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, with the use of uh, photographs some video that friends had and a lot of interviews, recreated that apartment down to the last, uh, speck of dirt mm. uh, for Tick, Tick, Boom. And he gave us, like a few of us, um, a Zoom tour of the set um, during during the pandemic, um, just before they broke it down after finishing shooting on uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. And it was one of the freakiest experiences I've ever had to suddenly mm. see a space that I'd spent a lot of time in but never, ever expected to see again. Recreated, I mean, right down to the last, you know, piece of uh, leftover food stuck between the cushions of his sofa. They really recreated it. So I don't know. I, I haven't seen the movie yet. I, I, we're going to see it next month. It's, I just got an invitation to the opening. Um, but that was really crazy yeah, <laughs> to see yeah. that place reborn. Yeah. So you, you mentioned Jeffrey Seller a moment ago. Um, he comes up a lot in the book, especially in, the, in the, the second half of the book. He's a prolific producer. What's his process when he decides to do a project? Because it seems that, uh, and I'm sure he's had, he's, he's had some flops or not as successful shows, but, I mean, everything he, he, he seems to do seems to do well. Well, I'll tell you two things. Um, he goes by, He really does go by his gut in terms of what he responds to. And he talks about it in the book. Jeffrey um, gave me a lot of really, really wonderful interview time. Um, I, I let him basically tell the story of Hamilton, which he produced. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the chapter. And uh, he also talks about his flops very candidly. He, talks, he talked about um, the show he did with Sting that, that really crashed and burned. Um, and I'm blanking, on the, on the, I'm blanking on the name of the show. But... Um, what he does do is, um, as he said, he measures the show by his uh, experience watching or reading it that he's seeing something that he's never seen or heard before. That seems to be central to his um, method, which is very, very different, antithetical in many ways to the average Broadway producer who's often producing a musical of a movie that we've all seen before at this mm-hmm. point. Um, uh, for Jeffrey, it's all about um, if, I've, if he feels that there, there's an aspect to it that he's never seen or heard before. That's the most exciting thing to him. 
and uh, it's it's worked out pretty well. Beyond that, he's a very astute businessman. He doesn't mess around um, in developing these shows. And as we talked, he talks about it in the book also. I'm fascinated by how he has managed also to promote some of his shows into huge hits. Um, and that's that's another aspect of being a great producer is um, knowing how to push the buttons, you know, to get the media and ultimately how to win Tony Awards. Um, and I'll just leave it at that because you, you got to read the book yeah. to see how he has how he does do that. But he talks very candidly about it. Indeed, indeed. Um, as a Canadian, I have to ask about Garth Grabinski. Um <laughs> he, he, it's one of my favorite stories. He, so, so if, you, if you're talking about villains in the book, I mean, he, he certainly comes up, up as one. Um, it, 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 we get a sense in, in, in your book, the first half of the book, about how he viewed um, making theater as, as, a, as a business and how he did that. Uh, do you think at the end of the day there, there's, there are any contributions to the form that, 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 that could be traced to him, say? He's an interesting contradiction. Uh, he's a scoundrel, I think, mm-hmm. and, um, and and now an ex-felon. But he's often been drawn to interesting material, and he doesn't hesitate to hire really great talent. Unfortunately, part of his view of how he likes to function is to, to just hire, I think, haphazardly as much talent as money can buy and just pile them up. Um, on a show, and that does, and then and then you know just figure that it'll all shake out for the best because he's bought the best, and that is of course uh, a recipe for disaster on Broadway where you have to really mix the ingredients carefully, and that includes putting the right person in charge and creating a, uh, a creative atmosphere where that one person, whoever that is, has a, who has the vision of the show, then everybody works with them. And I just think Garth Dubinsky doesn't understand that, has never understood that. But he has brought a lot of great people and given them an opportunity to um, to work. And, you know, Ragtime is, the, is a terrific example of that. Um, so many good people were involved with that. So many talented people were in the show, Marin Maisie. And, um, you know, but there were too many hands, I feel, at work um, with Garth on top, just kind of crushing whatever he involved himself with uh, because he doesn't he doesn't have a sense of you know turning it over to a to a visionary like like Disney did with Tamor mm. and Lion King and just letting it ride now he's back on Broadway I'm amazed that anyone would put a nickel into anything <laughs> that he I mean it's just like asking but then again look at our look at our former president obviously people are ready to bet on a on a on a on a Trumpian businessman um, to, to the ends of the earth, mm-hmm. but he's back and he's producing a show that I'm very curious about. Uh, the name of the show is Paradise Square. Um, it's kind of about the the the, the uh, moment at the turn of the last century down in the Five Points neighborhood of Manhattan, which was the worst slum on the you know, Lower East Side anywhere uh, in the city. Uh, how the African American community. And the Irish community came together there. I think it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet story set mm-hmm. in, a, in a bar. But um, what I'm intrigued about is that there's a lot of dance in it, and it seems to sort of suggest, uh, and there is truth to it, that um, the, the, the mixing of African-American dance and Irish clog dancing around that time helped give birth to tap dancing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's 
a fabulous uh, thing to see in a Broadway musical. And Bill T. Jones, who's a great choreographer, is is on the um, production team at Paradise Square. There are also about 50 other people on this production <laughs> team, with more people being hired all the time, including friends of mine who have been telling me about it. So it's the same old Garth style of producing, um, swatting away at, um, you know, a, with, a, with probably overkill of production people. But not, it's, it's, it doesn't, he, his, his, his instincts sometimes are for really interesting shows that he then kind of strangles. But it's, it's not to be, it's, it's, he, doesn't, he isn't a complete villain in that sense. Yeah, so, so um, knowing the theater as you have and covering it as you do in this book, um, one would assume that, that you, you have a formula as to, to what makes a show a success. Um, you know, as, as you write in the book, you know, a show that might look good on paper may not, um, you know, come through as well. But, but um, I mean, have, have you got a sense of what makes a show good? And, I mean, let's say we had to start one from, from the ground up. Could you? Could you? No. I mean, I, let me first say that formula, I reject that idea. I mm. mean, there is no formula for right. um so, so no, I do believe that there are formulas, and those formulas have been employed um, to all kinds of ends, both successful and unsuccessful. But uh, personally, I have no interest in shows that have formulas as their essence. Um, it comes down to to great talent with a passion to tell a certain story, when the, with a passion to tell its story, whatever that story may be. And when that is united, you you can. Feel it elevating um, the experience. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of talent in shows where there that lack passion or a good story, and those tend to be the shows where you come away thinking uh, that made, didn't make me feel much, but it wasn't terrible, but it doesn't kind of work. But when that it, it, there's a lot to do with the passion of the creators for what they're have, what they have to say and the talent that it takes to express it. So. To give an example, I mean, Hamilton obviously is the passionately felt expression of Lin-Manuel Miranda, and everything else in it is in service to that passion to tell a crazy story, if you stop and think about yeah, it, the yeah. idea of telling the story of the Founding Fathers and Hamilton, you know, as an African-American or, or a persons of color yeah. um, story. Um, on paper, that may sound completely whacked out, but... Um, it works because Linda Miranda had the vision and the desire to tell it and the ability to tell it. But the same thing goes for um, the band's visit, which is a show that I admired so much and which is so circumspect and kind of quiet in its expression on stage. But the same burning intensity of passion to tell the story well and David Yazbek, the composer's connection to Lebanese and Arabic music, which he brings to the stage, which is extraordinary. That, that to me, if there's any formula, and there really isn't, it has to do with that. A passion combined with um, ability, to, with, with pure talent, um, to tell a certain particular story, and then getting everybody on board uh, involved with the show to tell that story with the same passion. It's very tricky. Sondheim talks about it in the book, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I think talks about it very well, and so does Hal Prince, who ended the first half by saying to me, um, even though people may think that Broadway's dead or dying and that there's, you know, that all the stories have been told, you never know when someone's just going to walk up to you with a, with a story that's never been told before and a passion to tell it, and suddenly it's going to seem so inevitable as if it was always there waiting to be told. And when he told me this, 
um, I, I'm quoting him from around 2002 when uh-huh. he said it, but when I reread it, working on this new edition, I thought, my God, it's like he's predicting Hamilton, you know, from yeah. a distance. It's exactly the experience of Hamilton. Um, I want to let you go in just a sec, but um, the, the Internet and its role in, um, say, uh, advancing the musical theater, not necessarily advancing it, but, say, proliferating it. Promoting through, it. Yeah, through, through popular culture. Um, I, I was going to ask you about Glee, but... but um, as you write in the book, Glee was never a top ten show, and yet no. it seemed to spread online yeah. through through um, y- younger viewers, especially. Um, be more chill, Beetlejuice. Um, a lot of the music from 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 those shows, you know, um, people knew them before they knew that they were Broadway shows. Um, Absolutely. What role does the internet have uh, now and in the future in terms of of the future of the musical theater form? Well, that's the horror of it. Um, it has tremendous power, and that power can be good um, in sharing all kinds of uh, new musical theater with especially a younger audience. I love the fact that my kids um, fell in love with music that I never even played for them around the house initially, simply because they found it on their streams mm. on you know, whatever they were listening to, iTunes or Pandora, and one song would lead to another, and they, they heard all kinds of great theater music that they fell in love with without my even having to you know, drop a needle or, or, or put on a CD or anything. So that's all wonderful. But the same um, disinformation and the same um, um, personal attacks and character assassination that we are dealing with on the Internet in politics mm-hmm. um, happens with musical theater, and, uh, and that's atrocious. Um, and uh, terribly destructive to the artists and to the shows. Um, you know, a show now um, where, where Steve Sondheim would take a show with Hal Prince out of town and you know work on it in Boston, and some people would come back talking about it, but for the most part they got to work on it in you know relative obscurity and peace up there until they were ready to bring it to New York. Now if you do a show in Boston... Um, the overture, while it's happening, is probably being broadcast by someone with their phone um, to more people than may have even ever seen a little night music mm-hmm. <laughs> when it played on Broadway. So that can be terribly destructive, and um, there can be terribly ir- irresponsibly wielded. Um, and I personally think that we'd, the, that ultimately musical theater would be better off without the internet to just let artists create and then when when they're ready we'd come see what they have created but obviously that we're not going to go back there so i just have to hope that um it will be a force for good um when i worry that it's often uh, a force for evil or also for as you said and i talked about it in the book be more chill and I must say, Be More Chill was, was written and performed by people whose work I admire, but mm-hmm. I just never thought that the show was that good, and the show itself got such an advanced thrust from the Internet that um, it seemed like a foregone conclusion when it got here, but then when people actually sat down and had to sit through it, um, they weren't necessarily thrilled. Whereas, as my, again, I turned the, the opinion over to my daughter on Dear Evan Hansen, mm-hmm. which I admired a great deal, but... She put it beautifully, you know. She just said, and I, and I quoted her in the book, you know, that Dear Evan Hansen um, didn't seem to want to prove anything about what it, kids 
should or shouldn't be feeling or thinking. <clears throat> it just told a great story that she could deeply relate to, and um, it made all the difference to her. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about Bobby Short, and perhaps you'll, you'll graciously come back another time to talk about him. And, and uh, but, but, but there's there's one question about Churchill that that um, if you'll indulge me, um, I always thought that that um, or I always wondered, I should say, why they never made a musical about him. Someone tried. Really? They did it in London, I think in the 80s. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but they definitely mounted it in on the West End, and it had a very brief run. It's a tough thing to do because it's very hard to imagine Winston Churchill singing. <laughs> it's just a hard thing to get across yeah. because he's such a caricature of himself in most people's minds. Um and I almost think, ultimately, that the best Churchill musical uh, that could be written would be one about all the people working for Churchill and how they view Churchill, with Churchill as the one non-singing character. That might be something that might work, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So for people listening to this, you, you wrote uh, your previous book, was, was Churchill's Style, The Art of Being Winston Churchill. It's a great book that I read in the last year or so. Um, not knowing that you'd come on today. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that um, sometime soon, um, but until then, uh, I enjoyed Ever After a great deal and, and could spend an afternoon talking to you about it. Congratulations on, on um, this new uh, edition and, and all the best. Thank you very much. The same to you, and I hope we'll talk again. The website for more is at barrysinger.net. The book is called Ever After, 40 Years of Musical Theatre and Beyond, 1977 to 2020. It is published by Applause Books. Its author, Barry Singer, joined me on the line from New York City in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plata.